Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about the social meaning of science fiction. I'm Annalee Newitz. I'm a science journalist who writes science fiction. I'm Charlie J. Danders. I'm a science fiction writer who thinks a lot about science. Are you, do you think about it like in the bathroom? Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, especially. That is, that is science, right? I mean, when I'm at your house, you have all the new scientist magazines in the bathroom. <laughs> so that is actually a big site of scientific research for me. <laughs> is like reading your new scientist magazine in the bathroom. Like that's, you know. Yeah, no, I, they, I think they'd be pleased to hear that. Yeah, I learn a lot. <laughs> so in this episode, we're not going to be talking about Charlie's bathroom habits. We're I mean, be... are we? I don't know. <laughs> in this episode, we're going to be talking about female monsters, both in books, on the screen, in comics, anywhere you can look for monsters, you're going to find women who are being associated with monstrosity. So we want to talk a little bit about representations of female monsters, but also women who create monsters, women who write about them, women who build them, and if there's any difference between the two things. And we're also super lucky to have guest Mallory O'Meara on with us in the second half of the episode. She is a filmmaker and writer who wrote the book The Lady from the Black Lagoon, Hollywood Monsters and the Lost Legacy of Millicent Patrick. And it's all about the woman who designed the monster in The Creature from the Black Lagoon. So I'm really excited to talk to her. All right, let's get monstrous. So, Annalie, how did you start thinking about this topic? I feel like there was a tweet or something that you did that kind of addressed this issue. <laughs> um, well, I have been thinking about this topic since the 90s, but the tweet that I did was pretty recent. And so I will now read you my tweet. That's what Yay! we've come to in this podcast. We're is just, I'm just tweet reading. reading a tweet. I am not interested in horror movies where the scariest possible thing is one, disfigured women or girls, two, old women. Three, disfigured or old women who are naked. Four, women possessed by male demons. Five, women you thought were young and pretty, but are actually one through four on this list. So that led to an amazing, exciting Twitter thread of people nice. kind of, you know, talking about their own feelings about this issue. Like I said, I hadn't really realized like how much of a nerve this would touch, but I will admit that I was basically subtweeting the movie Hereditary, oh. which had all of these things. Uh, including gross, naked old women and, you know, creepy young women and creepy girls possessed by male demons. So where does this begin, this idea of, like, the female monster? Where do you think it starts in pop culture, in literature? We've seen women as monsters a lot in, of course, mythology and fairy tales, and you can go back that far if you want, but in the kind of modern era, um, you know, starting in like the early 20th century, we see it a lot in film. Everything from the movie Metropolis, where there's like a kind of demonic robot lady, to something like The Bride of Frankenstein, you know, and then later you get all kinds of crazy stuff like the Wasp Woman. And in more modern era, you have things like aliens, where you have like an evil alien queen who's obviously got lady parts because she keeps laying eggs all the time. 
So it's something that's been going on for a while. And I think the question for me is kind of what unites these kinds of images. And one of the most iconic horror girl monster images comes in The Exorcist, which is an early 1970s movie that I think a lot of people view as being basically the scariest movie ever made, uh, especially in the West. I think people really see it that way. I wanted to play a clip from that film that kind of, for me, captures a little bit of what I was screaming about in that tweet and also kind of the the crux of this kind of naked, ugly girl kind of thing. All right, so here's the clip. Jesus, fuck you! So those of you who've seen the movie recall that this is a scene relatively early on where the pubescent teenager, whose name is Reagan, in the movie um, has recently been possessed by Satan and she is starting to already look kind of gross and her mom comes into her room and catches her with her nightgown pulled up. She has a crucifix in one hand and she's stabbing it into her vagina and screaming, let Jesus fuck you. And then she grabs her mom's head and forces her mom's head between her legs and says, lick me, and then like beats her mom up. It's this kind of table setting for the movie about what is going to be scary here. So partly what's going to be scary is that a cute girl who starts out at the beginning of the movie as just this kind of innocent little pubescent girl is being violently sexualized. She's also blaspheming and she's also engaging in this kind of weird lesbonic incestuous thing with her mom. So she's radiating ugliness and sexuality that is inappropriate on like every kind of register. Many, many critics, of course, have pointed out that this is about, you know, teenage girl sexuality and how fucking scary that is for men who made this film and wrote this film and wrote the book that it's based on and star in the film. Really, the only women in this film are either the mom who's totally freaked out and sidelined or this horribly disfigured teen who mostly speaks in the voice of Satan. So she doesn't even have her own voice. She just gets to have Satan's voice. And then meanwhile, of course, in Carrie, you have menstruation as like the beginning of Carrie's journey into horror and her clash with her mother, who is, it's kind of the opposite. Her mother is kind of being weirdly religious and abusive towards her. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's kind of a reverse exorcist in a way. It's like religion is what causes the horror. Also bullying, of course. What is it about teenage girls' bodies in particular that you know, is so horrific to male filmmakers or to male creators. As I was just saying, I mean, obviously part of it is sexuality and part of it is the idea of a sexuality that's aggressive, which mm-hmm. is exactly what we're seeing in that scene in The Exorcist. It's also something that we see in Carrie where she becomes powerful and there's something about the fact that she's powerful and she has the ability to move things around with her mind Part of that tweet that I think is true is that it's also old women's bodies Mm -hmm. that are scary. Uh, It's not just teenage bodies. Right. And, of course, there's the iconic scene in The Shining where Jack Nicholson's character is menaced by this beautiful woman who turns out to be an old, ugly woman with, like, scabs on her body. And, like, it's so scary because, like, I guess it wasn't scary when she was, like, a naked ghost lady who looked hot. But, like, as soon as she's, like, a naked old lady, it's like, ah... 
Yeah, and that is a common motif in a lot of horror movies, especially horror comedies, is, you know, the kind of beautiful woman who turns out to be old and ugly, and, like, you start hooking up with her, but the cis dude doesn't realize that this hot chick is actually not. It kind of goes along with things like species, I guess, and, like, that whole trope that was so big for a while of, like, the hot, naked alien chick who's actually kind of all tentacly. Mm-hmm. She has spines. Yeah. That's in the Transformers movies, too. Yeah. Like, there's a, a sex scene where it's like, but you thought you were just getting laid, but actually she's secretly got 20 penises coming out of her body or whatever. So, right. I mean, if you think of a tentacle as a penis, which obviously I do. So. <laughs> right. Well, duh. It is this sort of this fear of, of inversion and of women's sexuality becoming more aggressive and less kind of quote unquote receptive. One of the things I was thinking about as I was prepping for this episode is the trope of Dark Phoenix. Right. Um, because this is something that we see not just in the X-Men comics, but, you know, throughout these kinds of stories where women who have lots of power go dark. Right. You know, they, they become evil and destructive. And so it's that same idea of like, oh, they seem pretty on the outside and where prettiness is coded as goodness. Right. And then they, being well behaved or whatever. Yeah. Being well behaved. Exactly. Because what is the real problem with Dark Phoenix? It's that she won't do what Xavier tells her to do. Right. She's a bad girl. She's, She's a, bad a girl. rebel. And isn't the whole backstory for Jean Grey that like the only reason she's able to stay sane is because Xavier like puts all this crap in her head to like hold her power back? That's, I mean, in the movies, I can't remember if that's true in the comics or not. So at least in the movies, that's part of the idea is that she's kind of going outside the lines. A common thread here is that men are making films about the ugliness and horror of female power, uncontrollability of female power. I feel like this is one of those situations where there's the Freudian idea that everything that isn't sexual is actually secretly sexual. But if you kind of turn that on its head and you look at the exorcist scene, the let Jesus fuck you scene, and you say, well, maybe this is a case where the sex is actually about something else, like that there's a subtext that's not sexual to that sexual scene. That subtext is something about women coming into their own and having power and women being assertive and aggressive and also women rejecting ideology that's been smashed into their head. You know, in this case, it's the ideology of Catholicism, but it's also about being obedient and about always doing what mommy says. So I think sometimes that the sexuality that we see in these stories is a cover for something else, like that we kind of throw the sexuality at the screen because people are like, oh, women, that means sex. But actually, it's it, we're talking about something else. Horror movies, obviously, as a genre, are notorious for punishing women for being sexual. And that's where the kind of idea of the final girl comes in. But the final girl is usually like the good girl as well. She is the girl who kind of follows the rules when nobody else does. Yeah, I mean, the idea of the final girl comes from this great book called Men, Women, and Chainsaws by Carol Clover. And she was writing about slasher films. And I think the movie Halloween was kind of her main text, one of the main texts that she looked at. And so she was interested in how the girl who survives, as you said, she's not sexual. She's often a tomboy. So she's almost coded as male. And she gets to survive because she hasn't been out humping in the woods the way the kids are in the first Jason movie, basically. 
uh, which was called Friday the 13th. Um, and actually, I would like to point out that in the first Friday the 13th movie, the monster is a woman. It's actually Jason's mom who's killing everybody. And everyone always forgets that. They're like, Jason, the ultimate dude and you know, dude killer. And it's like, well, it all started with Mrs. Jason. <laughs> right. <laughs> Murdering a bunch of kids for humping in the woods. So can we talk about the alien movies a little bit? You know, you mentioned alien and there's all that imagery of cis women body parts in the alien spaceship. There's basically like vaginas everywhere. Everywhere, and then the horror is that men get impregnated. The horror of gender inversion. Yeah. Or sex inversion, really. And the horror of just reproduction and of this intrinsically, you know, cis female experience. Well, as I was saying, like a lot of the stuff about sex is really code for something else, maybe. But I think in this case, men making monster movies with female monsters just always come back to reproduction as the scariest possible thing. So I it's true we were talking earlier about how like naked old women and naked disfigured young women are like number one scary thing, but it seems like number two is like menstruation as you mentioned with Carrie. Anything that feels like reproduction like with the alien movies. Also the David Cronenberg movie Videodrome where right. James Woods grows a vagina and sticks a VHS tape into it, which like every time James Woods tweets, I just think about that and I'm like, take this VHS tape into your vagina now, James Woods. Oh my God. <laughs> so I think there is like a terror of the feminine. There's the terror of the cis woman's body. Where does that come from? Well, misogyny. Right. <laughs> I, I'm like, I'm at a loss. I'm sure, you know, someone who is really interested in mythology would claim that there was some kind of, you know, Jungian explanation. But I, I reject that. I think it's just I think it's just misogyny. And that's a lot of body horror, right? Body, like you mentioned Cronenberg, a lot of his stuff is is about the horror of, of female bodies. Yeah. Like, how horrible would it be to be a cis woman? You mm-hmm. know, like, that's literally just like the proposition of a lot of these movies. Like, what if you had a hole in your body and a baby could come out? Uh-huh. Oh, my God. And it's like, yeah, that's just normal. <laughs> like, what if you had a hole in your body and poop could come out? Like, it's just like... That would be horrifying. Would like, I think we need <laughs> more, more butthole horror movies. I mean, I'm down with that. Wasn't there, like, a huge butthole movie a few years ago about, like, an evil butthole <laughs> that, like, goes on a rampage or whatever? It's called Bad Milo. And it's about oh, a man who right, learns right, right. that his stomach pains are being caused by a demon that lives in his intestines. And it's okay. Ken Marino from like Veronica Mars and various other things. And he has like an evil butt demon. There you go. That's awesome. And Brian Yuzna's film Society, which you and I have talked about yeah. probably more than once on this show because we both love it. It does have a guy whose head comes out of his butt. So that's exciting. It's funny because I think we're going to get more butthole horror the more that gay men start making films, you know, because it's about sexuality and and we've already been discussing how sexuality is a kind of way of talking about these other issues. So I eagerly await hot butthole horror. Yeah, (laughs) for sure. So let's turn now to talk a little bit about what happens when women start making these kinds of stories, when women write these kinds of stories, when, right. they, when they're filmmakers who are creating monsters, how is it different? And of course, the very first monster story that we have in English that is a kind of sci-fi story is Frankenstein, written by a woman, right. Mary Shelley. And it's all about reproduction. It is about reproduction, but interestingly different from the kinds of reproduction horror that we see in male narratives, right? Because this is not about somebody growing a vagina or like squirting weird aliens out of their face or like any kind of like goopy blobby stuff. This is about 
putting together a person out of dead body parts and, mm-hmm. and using electricity. It's very, in a weird way, it's very antiseptic, even though, of course, every film version of this, especially in the modern era, is very gloopy and like they kind of add a bunch of goobers to it. Yeah, I mean, Kenneth Brenna literally like has everybody just covered in lube, like wrestling. And I know, stuff. there's like a KY Jelly wrestling scene in that film, which is kind of amazing. But I mean, the early Frankenstein films don't. It is much more just kind of as if this is a person being put together out of rocks or something like that. They don't bleed. You know, the Frankenstein monster is kind of a cyborg. You know, he, mm-hmm. he's really part machine. I'm really persuaded by a recent book published by Lita Judge about Mary Shelley, in which basically she, Judge argues that the monster is supposed to be a woman and that it's all about how women were kind of marginalized. And one of the things that Judge talks about a lot is how the monster learns to speak and read by looking in a window where a guy is teaching his kids. Mm -hmm. And Judge talks about how this is basically how a woman would have to learn. Like women couldn't go to school. So if you were going to learn, you'd be kind of like peeking in on your brother's lessons and you'd be watching from the shadows to kind of get information. And so I thought that was really interesting because one of the things we see in a lot of the monsters created by women is that the monsters are sympathetic. We identify with the monsters, you know, so there's Frankenstein's monster who we certainly identify with. Mm-hmm. But then Anne Rice and Tanana Reeve do, uh, who come along in the 70s and 80s and 90s, and they're writing about classical monsters like vampires and the undead. And right. Ghosts. And those are all very sympathetic characters in their work. And then you get a movie like Ginger Snaps, which was written by a woman where we kind of sympathize with the werewolves. It's interesting that we kind of see women exploring that idea of a sympathetic monster. And of course, also, as we'll talk about later with Mallory O'Meara, a woman created the creature from the Black Lagoon. And that's one of the very first sympathetic monsters that we see in kind of monster movie land Mm -hmm. coming from Universal. So and then, of course, there's C.L. Moore, who was like a massively underrated, amazing author of science fiction and other genres. And, you know, she did her own retelling of the Medusa myth in her story Chamblot, which we actually have a clip of her reading. The myth of the Medusa, for instance, can never have had its roots in the soil of Earth. That tale of the snake-haired gorgon whose gaze turned the gazer to stone never originated about any creature that Earth nourished. And those ancient Greeks who told the story must have remembered, dimly and half-believing, a tale of antiquity about some strange being from one of the outlying planets their remotest ancestors once trod. I love how, like, blasé she sounds in that clip. She sounds very kind of chill about it. Yeah, she's just, she's a super chill lady. Um, So that was published in 1933 in wow. Weird, Weird Tales magazine. Oh, my God. I think she was one of the only, if not the only woman who was ever published in Weird Tales. Wow. And apparently when the editors got that story in the mail from the slush pile, they all took the afternoon off and drank because they knew it was going to be so great that they didn't need to do any more work that oh, day. Oh, wow. So she contributed a lot to Weird Tales, and this was a very popular piece that Chamblot won a bunch of awards, and it's kind of her calling card. And the thing that's interesting is to me is that it's a retelling of the Medusa myth, where Medusa is an alien, and she has these tentacles on her head, and she uses them to kind of hypnotize men and get men nice. addicted to her and stuff like that. So it's kind of a succubus thing, but also an alien. Like I said, it's just it's revisionist 
female monsters. So she's taken a classic female monster and said, well, actually, what if this was just an alien and this was just how the alien lives is like by eating people, you know, and it's like just kind of natural that she gets people addicted to her. I think that ends up also being kind of a theme in a lot of these stories by women is kind of changing our perspective on a monster that maybe we already know. And sort of turning things upside down, like in The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson, there's hints that it's not really a ghost story, right? It's a ghost story that's kind of turned on its head. So I haven't seen the new series, The Haunting of Hill House, which is a huge gap in my pop culture consumption, and I apologize. But the original novel by Shirley Jackson, which came out in the late 50s, similar to the show where, you know, people have come to this house because they want to investigate the possibility that ghosts are real. And the character of Eleanor, who is eventually kind of, well, we're not really sure, but she's sort of possessed by the house. In the book, it's hinted that maybe she's telekinetic and that she's causing all the things that other people are reading as being ghosts. And to me, that's interesting because it's kind of showing that the idea that a woman could have that much power, the power to move things with her mind, is considered to be ridiculous and no one considers that. But like the idea that ghosts might be real, well, of course, right? you know, well, that seems just logical and we're going to use science to find out more. But we won't investigate the possibility that like, well, maybe a woman is just doing all this with, with her mind, which indeed, of course, a woman was. Shirley Jackson used the power of her mind to haunt us with this story. And it's been made into two different movies and that TV show just scared the shit out of people. So right. Um, so her mind continues to haunt us into the present. I have a question for you because one of the things I was thinking about a lot is that J.K. Rowling has created one of the most memorable monsters right. of, of the modern age, Voldemort. So do you think it makes any difference that a cis lady created Voldemort? I mean, I think it's interesting because Voldemort is kind of this creepy kind of phallic looking dude. Right, he's a snaky guy. He's a snaky dude. He's got this snake girlfriend. He's, you know, I mean, the controversial snake girlfriend. He's sort of creepy, and we keep being told that, like, his problem is that he doesn't understand love or that he doesn't believe in love, and that's why he loses. And he's sort of, you know, in some ways, the archetypal male control freak, but he's also, like, weirdly feminized, especially in the movies. He's so smooth and kind of sultry. I don't know. (laughs) I'm just kind of (laughs) making stuff up now, but I, I feel like there's something to that. And I feel like. Often movie villains and like horror movie villains, even if they're dudes, are kind of feminized and kind of like part of what's creepy about them is that they're not manly or that they're not. Mm -hmm. I think that that's one of the fears that a lot of horror and fantasy narratives kind of tap into. One of the things about Voldemort that's also really interesting is that he's an authoritarian leader. He's kind of a classic shitty dude. Mm -hmm. And that's another theme that we see in women's monster movies. We see like shitty dudes either creating monsters or being the monster. The movie American Psycho, which was directed by Mary Heron, is about like a classic shitty dude. Right. I mean, he's also killing people, so that's not really classic. Like there's lots of shitty dudes out there who don't take it that far. Right. Again, that's something we just don't see very often in kind of cis male authored monster movies. We don't see that sort of the bad snaky guy is also fitting this mold of like a crappy guy. I keep thinking about the movie The Babadook, directed and written by Jennifer Kent, which is all about this woman's anxiety of being a bad mother and she and her son kind of conjure this monster from like a storybook who is you know kind of just like your typical creepy dude character 
but he also symbolizes all of her kind of anxieties about motherhood and being a bad mother and all of the pressure she's getting from the other moms and all of the anxieties that she's suffering. All of her anxieties about herself as a woman are kind of projected onto this like scary dude figure hmm. who kind of externalizes it. Yeah. And I think that cis men take all their anxieties about their their manhood or their manliness and sex and whether they're going to be able to boink hot ladies or not and project them onto these scary images of unboinkable or, you know, too powerful or too disturbing women. I think that there is a case to be made that female horror creators turn around and do the opposite. They take all their anxieties and insecurities about being women and about inadequacy and nobody wanting to boink them and, you know, them not getting to boink any hot dudes or whoever they want to boink. And they project them onto kind of these like scary, weird dude figures yeah, that's super interesting. I was thinking a lot about Lauren Bucas's novel, The Shining Girls, which yeah. is about a shitty dude who travels through time and kills women that before they're able to achieve any kind of power because he kind of consents when there's women who are going to make a difference in the world and he kind of seeks them out and destroys them in this really super scary way. Like it's it's really I can't recommend that novel enough. It's not anxieties about so much about who gets to boink who. But it is anxieties about power. Right. And I think that's what Voldemort is about, too. It's like that fear of for women, for cis women uh, and trans women. One of the biggest fears that we have is that some person or some group of people is going to rip away our power because it's just so easy to do, you know. Yeah. And control over our bodies and, you know, yeah. control of our bodies, control of our fate, control of where we get to work. Um, whether we get to work and you know women trans women and cis women are still groups that are incredibly vulnerable to that and you know as we can see from the Me Too era this is still an ongoing problem and so I think one of the terrors that women do project onto their monsters is like a shitty guy who's going to take it all away so in Haunting of Hill House you have that thing where the woman is possibly telekinetic but everybody is just insisting that it's all just ghosts is that a theme? Is the thing of like women having power but being gaslit about it? Is that, you know, a thing that you see in horror by women? I think that's a big part of it. I mean, Voldemort has kind of mind control, which I don't mean to keep picking on Voldemort, but I do think that one of the issues that we see coming up in women's horror often has to do with somehow people not believing them. Or right. When they insist on something that people don't take it seriously. Right. And interestingly, of course, gaslighting comes out of an Alfred Hitchcock movie. So a guy kind of invented that idea or, or named it. Or right. actually, he, he named the movie and then later women kind of used the name of his movie to talk about this thing that guys do all the time. I think it, it does come up a lot. I think in a lot of the stories that we've been talking about, I mean, including actually The Shining Girls, there's a ton of gaslighting in there. And it's the same thing with like a lot of stories about vampires, which kind of glamour people. Right. Um, there's a, that's obviously like the ultimate gaslighting. And I think that goes into what we were talking about before about this fear of losing your power. Like what if someone tricks you into thinking that you don't deserve to have power because you've become Dark Phoenix? Oh my God, I totally want to see like a revisionist Dark Phoenix thing where actually she's really good, but like 
Xavier is just gaslighting her into thinking that she's bad and that's why and she And that her power con- is dangerous and it's yeah. actually just like he's being a shitty dude. I mean, I feel like that's the logical endpoint of that story that we've just never quite gotten to. Oh, I really hope that that like somebody makes that at some point or makes another comic that kind of deals with that because that's just, I feel like that's what's going on. Like Xavier is the ultimate gaslighter. He really is. So I wanted to finish by talking about a couple of movies that uh, we both love that are kind of about women who become supernatural and powerful and how that messes everything up. The movie Bit, which came out recently, and Zombie Strippers. Yeah, and, you know, both of which are made by men. Both of which are made by male directors, but I love them both so much. Like Bit is a movie that it's just kind of out in limited release. It's doing the festival circuit right now. It's about a trans girl played by Nicole Maines from Supergirl who gets recruited to join a gang of basically like queer lady vampires who go around killing men who are, you know, problematic. And And sometimes just random men. And sometimes they just kill (laughs) random people. I like how in that movie at one point the main vampire is asked, like, so do you only kill bad people? And she's like, eh, 80-20. Yeah. You know, I mean... (laughs) We try. We do our best. Like, four out of five times we kill bad people. The fifth person is just random... Chance. Random, you know... (laughs) Random Bystander or whatever, yeah. Uh, And then the movie Zombie Strippers, which is all about, like, there's some kind of weird chemical thing that happens. All these women become zombies, and they use it to be basically better strippers until of course it all goes horribly wrong and they start killing their patrons yeah but at first it's all these great scenes of like just incredibly athletic you know super fast crazy pole dancing done by zombies (laughs) which is amazing yeah both are kind of stories about women seizing power in ways that are you know a little morally ambiguous because you know killing people and eating people is is probably it's not the best way to solve patriarchy But yeah, I think it's interesting. Bit is a great example of how I think a feminist sensibility or even just like a a female authored sensibility is kind of creeping into male authored films. I think the movie Ex Machina, which was uh, written and directed by Alex Garland, for whatever problems you might say it has, it's definitely trying to incorporate that idea of like how women are turned into monstrosities by men and what that means. Um, And I think it it does a relatively good job of thinking about that. And yeah, you know, both Bit and Zombie Strippers are about kind of marginalized, like, you know, queer women and sex workers and what happens, you know, they become powerful, but is it okay? Is it, are they actually becoming too much like men in the process? Which is too powerful or or are they sort of dark phoenix? Right? Are they like, Dark Phoenix again? Yeah, yeah. It's like it kind of goes into that hole. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll have our super special guest, Mallory O'Meara. So we're incredibly lucky now to be joined in the studio by Mallory O'Mara, the author of The Lady from the Black Lagoon, Hollywood Monsters, and the Lost Legacy of Millicent Patrick. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm so honored to be here. Yeah. It's totally our thrill and our pleasure to have you here. So maybe you can start off by just telling us, like, how did you find out about Millicent Patrick? What made you interested in writing this book about her? So I first found out about her when I was a teenager after I had watched Creature from the Black Lagoon for the first time. And I did what all of us nerds tend to do when we either read or watch or listen to something that we fall in love with. And I had to go online and find out all kinds of facts and behind the scenes pictures and trivia about it. And in amongst all the things that I found while I was a teenager was this picture of a woman working on the monster suit. And it really blew my brain open because up until 
then I had never seen a woman doing anything on a movie, let alone working on a monster. All, all my heroes were, you know, horror dudes, they're Tom Savini and Rick Baker and all those guys. And I just, I had never been able to envision myself in this world until I saw this picture of this amazing looking woman making monsters and it changed my life. And I didn't really plan on writing a book about her. I didn't ever plan on being an author, but several years later, after I got a tattoo of her, I got into a conversation with the person who is now my literary agent and they were like who is this woman and I was like well you know this woman named Millicent Patrick she designed the creature but nobody knows anything about her and he said oh wow you should write that book and I laughed and he said no no you should write that book wow that my life changed I'm really glad you did because her life story is so interesting and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you think that she changed the way monsters were made because there really was this shift after her creature toward it seems like monsters that were more I don't know sympathetic or like something about it felt different oh for sure I think Millicent absolutely changed the face of monster movies I mean from a technical standpoint alone like the the creature is really the first big iconic monster that was a full suit like that you know had to go in the water he had to be out in the daylight he really is like a complete monster he's not just like a head and hands but at the same time like you said the creature is really the first monster that we feel a lot of empathy for a lot of the other universal monsters were like oh we feel bad for them but they're still very monstrous to us when you watch creature Creature's not the bad guy. And I think a lot of being able to feel that way about him is the way that Millicent designed him. And then after that, we see such a huge legacy of a lot of sympathetic, empathetic monsters, whether they're vampires or werewolves or even, you know, giant monsters like King Kong or Godzilla. You know, that is sort of the key to making a classic monster movie is being able to fall in love with the monster. And I think Millicent changed the name of that game. So what is it about the creature that makes him lovable or sympathetic when, you know, Frankenstein or or the Wolfman or whatever weren't? I think for Creature, in that film, they really play up the evil scientist bad guy more than they do in a lot of other ones. You know, the Creature is just like hanging out in his lagoon. He just wants to swim and not have people flick cigarette butts at him. And he just wants to like (laughs) hang out. These scientists come in and you really see in this film that's a little bit different in other ones, a lot of more interhuman conflict. You know, there's one half of the scientists and they're like, oh, well, let's bring him, let's bring him back alive. And the other guy is the bad guy who is explored even further in Guillermo del Toro, Shape of Water. He is that sort of stereotypical toxic man who's like, no, let's kill him. We're going to kill him. We're going to take him back. And there's a lot more human conflict. And in the midst of all of that, the creature's like, hey, guys, can you leave me alone? (laughs) I'm just here. I'm hanging out. And that sort of mixed up with the way that Millicent designed his face. Like when you look at that, that design, he almost, the face almost looks articulated, but it's just a rubber mask. You know, it's not, those aren't different pieces. It's not a makeup, but it's so emotive the way that she designed it. And that you could, he looks like he's feeling pain or anger. And, you know, a lot of that is because of the great way that he was played by Ben Chapman and Riku Browning. But a lot of that is Millicent's design. So it's that the mask has like human looking features or that it's got something that makes us feel empathy towards it. Yeah, the first design of the creature that Millicent sort of took over from the, uh, you know, the the director and the producer, uh, the producer William Allen, he wanted something that was very empathetic. He wanted a monster that people felt bad for. He did not want something scary. And the first version of it looked 
terrible. It was like a frog who was wearing a spandex onesie and it was bad, bad, bad. And the, the, the studio wanted something that was a little bit more, a little bit more scary. And so Millicent uh, had to strike a balance between the two. And I think the way that, especially with the eyes and just the way that his nose is, he is in, sort of in that uncanny valley area where he looks just human enough that we can feel bad for him. Yeah, he also sometimes looks kind of surprised and outraged when when we see him because he's kind of he's doing that thing where he he kind of opens his mouth like he's a fish a little bit. But it also has this I don't know, it has this feeling of him being like, what the hell are you doing here in my Amazonian pond? Like, you know, why are you why are you invading? <laughs> he doesn't. Oh, seem, definitely. He doesn't seem like a tooth bearing, angry guy. He seems like a wait, what? You know, he definitely definitely has more of a range of emotions. I think a lot of the other universal monsters, I mean, like my favorite universal monster, the Wolfman. Wolfman has like one mode. He's like angry, horny. That's (laughs) the Wolfman. He doesn't have a big range. Uh But the creature, like you said, he can be, you see him being outraged. You see him being a little heartbroken or sad. You see him being scared, feeling helpless and tired. And again, this is all up against other monsters that are just faces and masks yeah or faces with makeup on and the fact that a full like latex rubber mask can compete against those other characters is incredible you brought up the shape of water and i wanted to talk about that a little bit because of course the monster in shape of water who's not really a monster but the creature in shape of water is designed by a guy it's a movie that's like you know basically a guy's movie with you know some women in it does it make a difference that a woman designed the creature in The Creature from the Black Lagoon and a guy designed the creature in The Shape of Water. Do you think that that it makes a difference, that the story is different or that the design is different? (laughs) Oh, I think it absolutely does. I think that's why it's so important that we need uh, a more inclusive group of people behind the scenes making these monsters. You know, in The Shape of Water, Mike Hill did an incredible job. I, I love the asset and Shape of Water. I think it's fantastic, but it definitely is a departure from the original. It feels like a little more, the, the shape of water creature almost feels like I, a man designing something that he would think a woman would want. Uh-huh. That's interesting. Yeah, I kept wondering about that as I was watching because I was like, yeah, like what is different about this creature? And I, I mean, there's that kind of scene in the in the film where like the main character is telling her friend that like, basically the the creature's dick can like pop out or something i forget like what how she kind of explains it but it's (laughs) like i just don't think of that as like a kind of conversation that would necessarily happen i mean maybe but like is that really the first thing that we would talk about like where does he hide his dick in this costume (laughs) (laughs) part of it i I think it is good and i think the film succeeds in the way but it feels like men trying to imagine what the female gaze is you know and it felt like guillermo del Toro and Mike Hill had to sit down and I could like Mike is a friend of mine I I feel like I should ask him he was just like they had to sit there and go what do what do women find sexy you know he has that butt he has these abs you know he has these big eyes Mm -hmm. uh he definitely it feels like you know it almost feels like a reversal of a lot of monster movie tropes where there's in a lot of classic monster movies there's the beautiful woman and she doesn't really have a personality besides like being pretty like that's her main personality trait and in the shape of water it's interesting to see that reverse because you don't actually see a lot of build up in the chemistry between the main character and the asset she just you know she just sees him and she's like oh he's a hot 
fish dude. I'm into that. Yeah. And it's, this, fish it, dude. it's the same dynamic that you see in a lot of monster movies where there's not a lot of buildup. You're like, oh, this monster or this guy loves this woman just because she's pretty. Yeah. And you see that in this. And I think it's interesting to explore, but it definitely feels like the a man's idea of what a woman would fall in love with. So what do you think are good examples of female created monsters now or female created monster movies now where we kind of get to see what basically like the kind of heritage of Millicent, like what what are women doing now that's different from what men are doing? Well, that's the heartbreaking thing is that no one has done it since Millicent. There hasn't been a big movie monster that has been designed by a woman since Creature from the Black Lagoon. Uh, There have been some indie stuff, which is really cool. And there have been some female directed monster movies that are great. Something that I always like to point to people is A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, which is like a vampire, Mm -hmm. sort of Ronian vampire noir film which is fantastic and the monster in that is so great and it's such a great exploration of like a sort of desexualized version of a female vampire and she's so great she's played the actress who plays her is fantastic but we gotten this great influx of monster movies recently we have the new kong skull island we have godzilla we had new predator but still none of them have been designed by women and it's it's a heartbreaking thing for me because there i know there are so so many female special effects artists out there who just they're all willing and ready to go. They just need the jobs. Yeah, I mean, we've had some, you know, monster movies that are either directed by women or written by women. Like there's Jennifer's Body, there's Ginger Snaps. We were talking a little bit earlier about American Psycho, which, of course, you know, it's just a guy. And the Babadook. <laughs> and the Babadook. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and also we were talking about Voldemort, who's a monster that was created by a woman. Um, obviously, she didn't design the monster for the film. But do you th- see any of these as like kind of departures from the typical kind of monster that you see? in? Yeah, it's really great for women to be directing this stuff. And I, I think, you know, right now we live in this age of Me Too and there's a huge push to get more female directors. But there's so many other roles on a film set, you know, and it, it, you can't just have one woman at the helm and be like, okay, great, we're diverse now. You know, there's you if you want to have a great female-created monster movie, you also have to have a great woman writing it. And you really should have a great woman designing and sculpting that monster. You know, I feel like you lose a little bit of it if you have a, a monster that is spraying out of the head of a woman, but a man is the one who gets to sculpt it and create right. it and put it together. Definitely do see a difference when you have more women. And, and that's the interesting thing for me uh, is that cishet white dudes have really shaped monster movie history for almost the entire thing. And they are the one group of people in the world who have the least to worry about about monsters. <laughs> like right. in real life, women are the one who have to, who walk out of a movie theater and they're the ones who have to continue thinking about it. You know, they might, they can walk out of a monster movie and they might encounter a real life monster on the walk home. Most dudes don't have to worry about that you know if they're white and straight and cis like they don't they, they can just like walk home with their headphones in and like not think about it i definitely think that we need uh, you know we need to have more people making monsters but like you said there's there are great monster movies that are created by women i'm really excited there's a, a new werewolf movie that is being written and directed by a great mexican director i love her name is isa lopez she directed the tigers are not afraid yeah. a couple of years ago which is She's an awesome. amazing film She's doing a female werewolf story, uh, which I'm nice. so excited about. And I'm, I'm hoping that a woman gets to design it. Obviously, Millicent Patrick's role in horror movie history was kind of obscured. And since then, there haven't been other women making monsters. Why do you think 
people are so threatened by the idea of a woman getting to design or create a monster for films or TV? One, it's a conceptual thing. I think it really throws people on their heels. I mean, it really did when Millicent was working, and it still does. And it, you know, I know a lot of women in every area of film who come across this bias. You know, editors who you, who hear from male directors, they they say to these female editors, like, "Oh, can you edit violence? Can you edit action?" And I think there's a lot of really throws men when they think of a woman designing something terrifying and powerful. You know, it's really a powerful position to be creatively in a film to design the monster. And also just there's a lot of bias. Like, you know, we see only men making things and we just assume so it's a self-looking ice cream cone. You know, you so you only think of men to do these things. And then men but men get the jobs and they get more experience, so they get more jobs. It's definitely true. I would love to see what I mean, I wish I could see like an alternate history of film where like women had designed a bunch of monsters. We were talking earlier about the movie Videodrome where the uh, scariest thing is like James Woods grows a vagina and sticks a VHS tape into it. <laughs> and it's like, what, oh, would, yeah. what would it have been like if a woman had been designing that monster? You know, would I don't think she would have thought the scariest thing was to have a vagina. <laughs> oh, for sure. I was actually joking. So my boyfriend has been teaching me how to play Warhammer and mm-hmm. I, because, you know, I'm just not nerdy enough and I, I'm going to be playing the undead and he bought me this like undead queen and she's a skull with a, a sheet over her, but she still has boobs. Oh, yeah. like, well, of course. Like, wait, wait <laughs> I mean... she doesn't have skin on her face, but somehow she still has boobs. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, I think that's male creature design in a nutshell right there. It really oh, is. Yeah, and I was oh laughing, and I, was, I picked it up, and he didn't even notice it. And I was like, look, she's got tits. And I was like, of course a man designed this. Like, this is ridiculous. She doesn't even have a face. Oh my god. It's like the Borg Queen, the sexy Borg Queen. Yeah. yeah. Who's like all fetishy. It- Oh, it's so ridiculous. And but yeah, I would love to see and I'm hoping, you know, I, I, I would love to see, you know, what the history of monster movies would have been like, you know, with more female designed monsters. But I'm hoping, you know, we still have we have time in the future, you know, and this is such a great age to be living in. If you like monsters or horror, there's so many great movies coming out that are really pushing the boundaries and telling really cool stories and I just hope that we get more women behind the camera to actually get in there and design those monsters. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This was yeah. great. Thank you so much and you know, where can people find you? Uh, so you can find me on Twitter way too much on at Mallory O'Mara and at Mallory O'Mara on Instagram as well. That's O-M-E-A-R-A and if you are interested in uh, my books or my films or anything that I do just go to MalloryOmara.com. Awesome. Yay, thanks so thanks. much. Alright, bye now. Bye. You've been listening to Our Opinions Are Correct. You can learn more about our show by going to Twitter and following us. We're OOACpod. Or you can support us on Patreon, which we would really appreciate. You can just find us on Patreon. Give us a buck. You know, it helps us eat. And we like that a lot. We record Our Opinions Are Correct here at Women's Audio Mission in San Francisco. Our producer is the amazing Veronica Simonetti. Mm. And the music is provided by Chris Palmer. And we will see you in two weeks. I mean, you'll hear us in two weeks. Yay, bye. Yay, bye.